You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to Real Vision Live. I'm the host today, Ed Harrison for Real Vision, and I'm talking to Jim Bianco, fellow cycling enthusiast and uh, of Bianco Research founder there. Jim, good to talk to you again. Good to talk to you, Ed. Yeah, so uh, uh, we were just talking about some cycling before, which is why I brought that in. But, you know, the the subject of this interview is really, I would say, more than anything, the uh, the the bubblicious, if you will, uh, market that we're dealing with. You've uh, been making some pointed commentary on Twitter. Uh, talk to me about how you're looking at the markets right now. Yeah, so you know, let's start off with how Wall Street works. It usually takes a good idea and it beats it into the ground and completely overdoes it. And I think that that's what's happening right now. Now, what is the good idea? We know that going into the pandemic and coming out of the pandemic, we haven't really changed any trends on Wall Street, uh, in the economy, but we've probably accelerated a lot of trends, like the work from home trend, the technology trend, people who didn't know what Zoom was or Skype was are now regularly using it and becoming expertise at it. And we have come, and Wall Street has picked up on this, or excuse me, investors have picked up on that there is a bit of a paradigm shift going, and Wall Street has been slow to understand this. So if you're given the option of put your money with an active manager who manages money from a big office tower in Boston, or put your money in a broad-based ETF like Spiders, they look around and go, well, that's not where the world's going. It's going towards disruptive technologies and new technologies. So investors have taken it upon themselves to say, I don't like either of those options. And yes, I do think that we're showing signs of the index ETF peaking, and they started to invest their money on their own. Good idea. But now they're completely beating it into the ground and overdoing it. And that's why you're getting the manic speculation that's coming out of it, whether it's the big parabolic rise in non-profitable technology companies or the extraordinary rise even today, again, with the most shorted companies and one of these epic short squeezes that we're seeing. The genesis of this idea is, Wall Street, you're not really on pace here. There's disruptive technology coming out, and things are changing. And don't keep pushing me into mega caps through the S&P 500 or giving me a, a CFA uh, level three analyst who studied Graham and Dodd to tell me what growth versus value is, that's not where the future is. So that part, I think they got right. It's just, I think that we're just overdoing it right now. Yeah, I would say overdoing it a lot. I mean, uh, I think it was interesting. You had, uh, this was on January the 19th, uh, you had a chart. This is the Goldman Sachs non-profitable tech basket, which consists of non-profitable U.S. listed companies in innovative industries, you know, tech defined broadly. Um, this this is a this index showed these companies flatlining. 
uh, you know, from 2015 to 2000 and I would say 19, there was a bit of a pickup at the beginning of 2020. And then they dropped down with everything else. And then since then, it's been a parabolic rise. It's literally a hockey stick. You know, it's it's completely flat and then it's completely, you know, parabolic upwards. Uh, talk to me about that chart in, in the context of what you just said. Yeah, so you're right that the whole idea about non-profitable tech companies is it's not supposed to be bad companies. It's supposed to be the innovative companies that are coming. They usually start off as money-losing companies, and then they graduate into becoming profitable companies, or at least that's the goal. And you're, since March, since the March low, as you pointed out, that hockey stick, it's up 400%. It was never close to 400% in the previous seven years before that. Uh, so, you know, what's changed since March? And I think it's largely because a lot of investors are coming into this market. Now, by the way, what are these companies? The two biggest companies are Plug Power, which is 12% of the index, which is the fuel cell manufacturer. That company's been around for 20 plus years, and now it's getting into hydrogen fuel cells and it's got everybody excited. And the Chinese automaker NEO, or electric vehicle maker NEO, that everybody's hoping is going to be the Chinese version of Tesla, that's at 8%. So that's 20% of the index right there, those two companies. Pinterest, Spotify, uh, Uber, Wayfair, you know, those are some of the other names that you will find in this index as far as it going as well, too. So coming out of the March low, I'm not surprised that non-profitable tech companies have done so well, because I think the argument is, look, we've accelerated the trends. These companies are now the, the leading edge of disruption, but 400% or the gigantic parabolic rise, that might be too much. Lastly, think about this. Let's go to the traditional tech companies, the FANGs, the Facebooks, the Apples, the Microsofts, the Googles. Uh, those companies, by and large, peaked in September. And they've been real. Now, I know they're technically at new all time highs, but they've really been struggling to take out their September high, while these non profitable tech companies have doubled over that period of time. And is it that almost the disruption is coming that these new wave of technology companies? are going to now eat the lunch of the FANG stocks, that the FANG stocks are now going to be put on the defensive because they're now going to be out-innovated by the next range. It's almost what Wall Street seems to be telling us because those big mega cap tech stocks, all of a sudden, it's like their feet are in mud where these all these other high racers continue to go as well, too. Well, could it be that, you know, uh, that we're in a mania and that uh, the mania has moved beyond the fangs and therefore is going to places where there's more juice. Absolutely. Two things can be right. <clears throat> Two things can be right or true at the same time. That the idea that all of these companies, these non-tech companies, they're the, the leading edge of the next wave of technology, the next wave of successful companies. That can be true. And what also could be true is everybody knows that it has completely overdone it. And I think so. That's what I mean by two things are right. So, yes, it is a mania. It has been overdone. But what I'm trying to emphasize here is the basis of the idea is not that everybody has collectively lost their mind. They've got the right idea. They've just taken it way too far. 
And because they've taken it way too far, I think it makes these companies vulnerable to some kind of a stiff pullback, but maybe not the idea that they are the leading edge of the disruption that's coming. Well, uh, I, you know, the obvious question is, is how do we invest in that environment? I mean, the, what I'm thinking about is I'm thinking about the uh, the web vans and the, uh, the pet dot coms of the world from uh, 20 years ago. Now, Webvan, I, I've said this before on the Real Vision platform, is a company uh, whose business model has now been proven uh, 20 years later. Pet, uh, 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 Pets.com, Th their business model has been proven as well. Chewy, Chewy. is a, a company that that's doing the exact same thing. So the question yeah. is, uh, what happens this time versus in in, in that era uh, twenty years ago? Yeah, so I I think you're right that a lot. Of, that's what I meant by twenty years ago. They had the idea right about online um, deliveries of groceries or online deliveries of pet foods and services, but they completely overdid it with Webban and pets.com but then you come into today and you've got you know Amazon delivering groceries you've got Chewy and it's been very successful. I I think though what you what we need to rec remember and Silicon Valley investor once said when you, uh when you buy what do you call a person who buys 10 speculative stocks nine of which goes to zero and the 10th is a unicorn. And the answer is fabulously wealthy. And that seems to be the mentality that everybody has. Uh, Roger McNamee of Elevation Partners has famously said that, don't ask me for stock opinions, 90% of the companies that I invest in go to zero. But the 10% that don't turn out to be the next Snap, the next Google, the next Facebook. And he's fabulously wealthy, even though nine out of 10 companies that he invests in go bust. That's the mentality that seems to be driving this. And nothing more. Then go back to 2019. Remember what the cautionary tale was just 18 months ago? It was WeWork. WeWork blew up. WeWork went completely over the side. That was supposed to be the message to investors. Don't go hog wild on these non-profitable startup tech companies, because look what happened with WeWork. Did that stop anybody? No. And before WeWork, you can even go, I know it's not a public company, Theranos. Did that stop anybody? No. And if you wanted to go, you know, even more, um, uh, more recent, take Nikolai. Nikolai, you know, the electric vehicle truck manufacturer, raced up to 100 in June. And then they put out a video of their new electric truck, only later to admit the truck doesn't actually work. And they had to film it going downhill so it actually would move. Now, Ed, you're not, you and I are old enough to know that in another era, that was called fraud and everybody went to jail. And today, that's just a marketing campaign that we just have a truck that doesn't work, film it going downhill because that be, the stock's under 20 bucks. But is that slowing anybody down from buying a Neo or a Tesla, the cautionary tale of Nikolai? Nope. And so, yeah, that's what's driving this idea. I only need one big winner. All the others can go to zero. And that's going to be a tough psyche to break for people because they're not concerned about everything. They just want that one lottery ticket to pay off. Right. And, and you know, I understand that. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. I'll, I'll preface it by saying that I have a, a, a functioning paradigm that says that we're in a land grab right now, that we had a land grab uh, in 1999 
uh, or actually the late 90s for the internet writ large. And that's when we saw the, uh, these companies come out to play. But it took a little while to, uh, you know, to, for that to coalesce. Now we're in another land grab, which is more mobile centric. A lot of these companies are d dealing with mobile technology. And, and so as a result, you, you want to get scale, you want to have a moat around your business, and therefore uh, it's understandable you would invest a lot and, and be unprofitable until you get to that point. The problem, however, of course, is going back to what happened in 99 and 2000, is uh, when the music stops, there are only so many chairs available. And you know, from an investing perspective, how do you know that you're invested in the next Amazon uh, this this time around? If nine of these ten go to zero, maybe ten of ten go to zero, or not you know nine go to zero and one goes uh, down thirty percent. How do you recover from that? Yeah, that's going to be tough. You're right, and that's part of the reason why you're seeing everything go up because nobody knows who's going to be the next Tesla or Amazon or fill in the blank. So buy them all. Buy them all is basically what has been the driving idea behind this. And you're right that at some point, what will happen is the market will peak and go down, and then the technology will be realized. Go to the 99-2000 tech bust, right? What, what came out of that wreckage? In the middle of that, 2004, Google went public. Uh, <clears throat> so you had arguably the most transformational company in the last 20 years. Amazon fell 90% and stayed down 90% after the tech bubble for 10 years. It was still 90% off its high before it went up you know, 20x or 30x since that low around 2010 uh, you know, or something like that. Uh, so yeah, you're, you don't know where, and that's what makes this such a difficult thing. Um, you know, As I said, the idea is right. We're just overdoing it. How do you invest in this? You buy them all and hope that one of the ones you bought turns out to be the next Snap or the next um, or the next Facebook is what you wind up hoping for uh, along the way. And if the rest go over the side, the rest go over the side. But the other thing I want to say is that even if we get the peak in the sell-off, it won't change the technology. After 2000, did we have a slowdown in the adoption of technology? No. But if you go back to 1929, that was a tech boom driven by mass communication and radio and the idea of moving pictures and everything else uh, of the day. After we had the, the 1929 bubble peak and bust, did radio stop? Did we stop innovating on television? No. And I, I famously like to say RCA, Radio Corporation of America, peaked in 1929 when it was the hot stock because of radio. It did not take out that 1929 peak until 1966, a couple of years after color television was invented by RCA. It took that long and that much innovation before it made a new high. In other words, we priced in. By 1929, you could say RCA had already priced in the invention of color television, which was still 30 years away at that point before it made a new high. Yeah, a lot of these stocks can turn out to be the winners. And they could wind up doing the same thing. Amazon did that. We priced in Amazon as being a transformational retailer. Then it lost 90% of its money. And you had to wait 11, 10 years before it bottomed, maybe 11 or 12 years to even get back to break even. Then it took off. We had priced it in too much too fast. And that's going to be the risk, I think, that investors have 
right now. They're pricing in too much too fast. Doesn't mean that the technology is bad. Doesn't mean that the innovation isn't coming. It's just that your prices have already, you've already priced in things that haven't yet happened yet, or even haven't even been conceived of in the case of RCA with color television. Well, you know, uh, it, the, it begs the question, why are people pricing in uh, those events into the future? I mean, one uh, postulation that I would uh, agree with, actually, is that you have interest rates at 0% on the base level around the world, sometimes negative, and that's causing people to pile into assets, to investments that are relatively long before the payoff comes, because there's no penalty to those investments. The discount rate is is very low. Uh, that It seems like that's not going away. And in some ways, this is a, a, a bubble which is inflated in part by uh, low interest rates. Yeah, I, I think that they're, <laughs> you know, let's write that large. I think you're absolutely right. And what I mean by write that large is there's, I think, a, a confluence of things that are coming. Disruptive technology, the new ideas are here. We've seen through experience how people wind up uh, winning with a lot of these, uh, with a lot of these unicorns, if you can find one as well, too. And then throw in a couple of other things that came together at the same time. 2019, most of the brokerage firms cut their commissions to zero. That is very powerful for people. Zero free is very powerful. Now, I understand people be listening to this and go, yeah, well, they sell their orders to Citadel and then they give them a bad fill. Nobody knows that. They only see zero commission. And that gets them excited. The next time you're at an intersection, and this just happened to me about a week ago, the next time you're at an intersection and there's a big expensive Mercedes making a left into a gas station because it's two cents cheaper on that side as opposed to the right. So the guy could save 40 cents with an $80,000 car. It's You're just programmed to do that without even thinking. And so zero commissions is very powerful. Fractional shares. All right. <clears throat> Tesla's at 1700 bucks or wherever it is this week, and it's too much money for me. I could buy one-tenth of it for $170. That's driving people in. Throw in the CARES money. Throw in all the stimulus. We keep sending people money, mailing them money. Well, they're not spending it because they're still uncertain about their job and the economy, but they're saving it. And a form of saving is opening a Robinhood account and maybe investing along those lines. And nothing like a little bit of success if you've been chasing some of the high flyers since March has got you full square you know, into the Reddit, Wall Street bets crowd and going with that as well, too. So yeah, I think a lot of that is all driving in this. And zero interest rates is definitely in that mix as well, too. Um, <clears throat> one fun statistic I like to give people is, uh, you know, as far as the perceptions of risk, the KBW, the, the Keith Bretton Woods Bank Stock Index, the U.S. large banks, that stock index is at the same level it was in the late 1990s, 23 years, and the bank stocks have done nothing, not a damn thing in 23 years. The S&P has gone up you know, from about 500 back then to almost 4,000 right now at the same time. So the banks have been notoriously an awful investment. There's been trades along the way where they do well, but that's it. What sector has the lowest short interest of all stocks in the, in the, in the, um, in the major indices? 
They bank stocks. No one shorts them. Why doesn't anybody short a bank stock if they're just constantly terrible investments? The answer is because of the moral hazard that we've created with the Fed, with zero interest rates, with regulation, with bailouts. The banks have been anointed that they will not go out of business. Shorting them, even though they're awful investments, is just not going to win because you've got the full might of the Federal Reserve and you've got the full might of the federal government to make sure that they continue to exist. So I'm not going to short them like I would, say, the energy stocks or some of the other. Yeah, I'm talking about more the traditional types of companies, the retailers, which all have very, very high short interests, but not the banks. And that's not been just recently. That's been basically throughout this entire advance through March. There's been very little shorting of the banks. And again, it comes back to that mentality of a moral hazard that the Federal Reserve, whatever they think, they're not letting the banks go down again. So I'm not going to try and fight that trend, even though I think that they might be lousy investments. Yeah, I, you know, there's a whole uh, panoply of different reasons why uh, we might be uh, to sky-high levels, and you've gone through a lot of them, including uh, some market structure issues like uh, short selling. I think it's interesting, you know, if you look at your timeline and Twitter, um, we, you talk about some of these market structure issues. So let's dive into that. Uh, when you talk about short selling, uh, you were talking earlier today, I believe, or maybe it was yesterday, about uh, that uh, this is a massive short squeeze potentially. Uh, here's the, here's the quote from yesterday. You said some say this is not a massive short squeeze because the total number of shorts is at a multi-year low. This is backwards. A short squeeze forces short positions to close. The chart below, which you have in your Twitter feed, uh, shows that is happening big time. I ask again, when was a bigger short squeeze in U.S. history? And in the chart, you're showing that uh, you know people have uh, gotten out of the short uh, over the recent past, and now short interest is low. Talk to me about market structure, short interest as one of the things that, you know, people covering their shorts uh, is one of the reasons that the market is going up. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Yeah, keep in mind that with a short, <clears throat> your, your profit potential is limited to, you know, that the stock can only go to zero. We haven't yet figured out a way to make stocks go negative. We have with crude oil, but not with stocks yet. Uh, and your loss potential is unlimited because the stock can continue to go up and up. Um, as well, too. So when you put out a short, it's possible to squeeze a short that, and usually when you buy it, when you engage in a short transaction, it's on leverage, it's on margin. So as the stock price goes up, you're required to put up more money or more collateral, or you're being forced to buy in and close the position. Now, as stock prices rally, especially the most shorted stocks go up, you get forced out of your position. And that's what you're seeing in that chart that you're referring to. The number of shorts in the market has been declining. Now, of course, prices are going up, but it's really been declining. And then there's a companion chart to that, the 50 most shorted stocks in the US. That is just 
by how big their short interest is relative to their float, those stocks are up 75% since early November. Uh, they have, they're up almost, at, at today's high, they were up nearly 30% since January 1st and up 10% just the, earlier today. Now, I don't know where they are right now, but earlier today, they were up 10%. So these short stocks are just flying and it's forcing everybody that's been short these companies to basically buy into them. The biggest short in the United States is GameStop. Uh, GameStop is short interest exceeds 100% of its float. That's how big it is. Now, technically it shouldn't do that, but it does happen occasionally because you shouldn't be selling naked shorts, which is essentially what they're doing. You should be borrowing the shares that you sell. And it's been caught in an epic short squeeze that's been compared to the, the biggest short squeeze anybody's ever seen was Volkswagen in 2018, which is referred to as the infinity squeeze. And this might be in some kind of infinity squeeze. A week ago, this company was $20. And today it hit as high as 135 intraday um, uh, you know, in just a week or so. AMC, the, the, um, the uh, theater chain, same type of deal. That stock had slumped to $2 on the idea that, well, no one's going to the theater and they've got these high fixed costs and bankruptcy is imminent. Well, the short squeeze took off. That stock went to five bucks. And now, now two to five, that's a 250% gain. What happened at five bucks? The company issued shares and raised another $917 million today and then said, look, now we don't have to go bankrupt anymore. And that might not be in the long term. That's good for AMC. That's good for AMC stockholders. But for the theater business that needs massive restructuring in the wake of the pandemic and the new normal that's coming, to just keep excess supply hanging around because we gave them an opportunity to raise more money to continue to exist as some form of a zombie company, I don't think it's going to help the theater industry in the long term. But in the short term, it's a big win for AMC and it's a big win for the AMC shareholders. This is the kind of distortions that you get. The market's got the right idea. We got to take some capacity out of theaters. But when you get into these ridiculous short squeezes like this, you wind up with having unusual type of activity that has perverse effects. Now, AMC continues to exist when maybe it shouldn't have. Very interesting. Uh, you know, uh, I think that there's another issue on a the market structure that you raised uh, in uh, Twitter. You were talking about overnight gains. And maybe you can put a little uh, uh, meat on the bones here. You said that since June the 8th, the S&P is up uh, 608 points. You know, 601 of those points actually came overnight. Only seven uh, came during the day. Uh, at, whereas from 1989 to 2016, none of the gains came overnight. Uh, what's going on market structure-wise that it's overnight that is causing the rally? Yeah, I mean, first of all, <clears throat> that's really, from a market structure standpoint, that's exactly what's been happening, that in general, the broad-based general of the market, all of the gains that you've seen in the market over the last several months comes overnight. It comes from the close one day to the open the next day. That's, as you pointed out, since June, 601 of the 608 points in the S&P through Friday came, and came uh, overnight as well, too. And that, prior to this, previous, to this period and even a couple of years ago, that was very unusual to see that happen. It just almost never happened. Now, why is that happening? 
That's a good question. I'm not exactly sure that I've got a, a, a good handle on why it's happening. I've just pointed out that it is handling happening. <clears throat> I think we've become much more 24-hour focused markets. You have the ability to trade them pretty much all throughout the day. You could trade these stocks or the indices at night in Asia, in the morning in Europe. And these companies are, are constantly trading. They get thinner overnight. It's easier to push them around. It takes less money overnight to push them around. And I also think that since the March low, there might be some gamesmanship going on too, uh, especially with individual names. Let's push up stock X overnight, we being professional professional speculators, because we know that at the open in the New York Stock Exchange, the Robin Hooders or the retail investors, they will buy. So we will buy now, force the stock price up. They're fairly price insensitive. At the open, they'll come in and buy, and we'll sell it to them and walk away with a profit. And so I think wash, rinse, repeat that that's been happening over and over again. That's what makes it so interesting that it's never been harder to be a day trader because all of a sudden, the action occurs when you're not during the day. You have to be an overnight trader in order to find some of the action. Now, there's exceptions to that. You know, Maybe Tesla's an exception to that, but that's it. There's just a few exceptions to it. The vast majority of stocks, they move overnight. Yeah, uh, very, very interesting to see how that develops. And you know, to me, a lot of this that we're talking about, market structure in terms of gains overnight, in terms of short selling, in terms of the acceleration of the trends that are causing these explosive moves, in uh, these non-profitable companies, this is all driven by the pandemic. And so on some level, uh, your view of how the pandemic is going to end really informs uh, when this is all going to come to a close and how this this changes. Um, You've been uh, tweeting a decent amount about what's going on with the pandemic. What what are you seeing now versus, say, Three months ago, two months ago, when we got the vaccine, how how optimistic are you that we're going to be in the fall and things are going to be very different today? Um, I, I'm getting mixed messages. I think what's changed in the last three months is, and I'm, I'll, I'll say this like a data geek that I am, the shift has gone from focusing on new infections and death rates, and we know that they have been going up. The new infections looks like they might be peaking in the last week or two in the United States, and they're starting to come down. They're starting to come down in California. And today, the governor even announced that he's lifting some of the regional restrictions just today um, in California. We know that. And we've been shifting towards watching the rate of vaccine doses, that that seems to be where everything is focused on. And there's two parallel tracks going on here. One, there's politics. There's the Biden administration saying that the Trump administration was a dismal failure, they had no plan, and they're leaving everybody with the impression that no one's getting vaccinated and that we're going to have to mobilize, to use Biden's word, an effort equal to World War II to get everybody vaccinated. But then you look at the data, and Bloomberg has a vaccine tracker page that updates real time throughout the day, 1.1 million people are being vaccinated every day. 
we're, you know, Biden's a, a goal of a hundred million shots in a hundred days or a run rate of a million a day. We're already past that um, and have been for the last week or so as we've been going forward. So if you look at the data, you'd say, okay, that, that, that looks good. We're really going. We're already at 1.1 million. We're way ahead of Europe. The U.S. has vaccinated almost 22 million people, or 22 million doses. About 3 million people have had the second dose. The other, the first 18 million have had the first dose versus 6 million doses in the Eurozone, um, which is about the same size and prosperity of the U.S. So we're way ahead of Europe when it comes to the vaccines <clears throat> as well. But then Fauci comes in and says, in order to return to normal, we need to get 70 to 85% of the population vaccinated. If you do the math, that works out to 500 million jabs that we need. Mm. At the rate we're going, we're not going to be there till 2022, even with all the optimistic assumptions that are in there. If Fauci is right that we need 70 to 85%. Now, there are other epidemiologists and other uh, vaccine, um, you know, infectious disease experts that say, no, you only need 40% in order to hit herd immunity. Yeah, but the administration top guy says 70 to 85. And if that's the administration's position, they're not going to let up on the reins of this lockdown economy until we get there. And it might not be until next year that we get that many jabs going on people. Look, 100 million in 100 days that's going to take 500 days in order to get to that number. Um, and that puts you into next summer is what that is what that winds up to. So that's the mixed messages. <clears throat> the, the statistic to watch is the vaccine rates and the vaccine dosages. And they're coming along now. They got off slowly, but they're starting to really ramp up right now. But the problem is they've thrown out this half a billion number out there and that we need to get to this half a billion number. And then Fauci speaking today, right before we started, uh, he's speaking, uh, you know, uh, for the World Economic Forum, the old Davos, which is now online going on this week. Uh, he said that the and he kind of contradicted the administration, their goal of not holding anything back in inventory and just get out there and just start jabbing arms. Well, they're going to run low in inventory for the second dose. And if you don't get the second dose within three weeks of the first dose, you kind of undo the reason you got the first dose. You need both together to get the immunity. But if you go out and you just jab a bunch of people once and it takes two or three months to get that second dose in you because we've kind of not managed our inventory properly, then you've kind of undone the effectiveness of the vaccine. Because if you go back and look at the studies, the first dose is not 95% effective. It's the two together that's 95% effective. And so you could run into those type of problems too if they didn't manage the inventories properly. And then we got to start over with a bunch of these people, um, you know, with the two-dose regimes as well too. So I get it. I see the excitement that, look, we're going to open, you know, as I like to say, I'm from Chicago and my friends in Chicago are like, we're going to get to go to Wrigley Field again this summer. Like, hold on a minute here. I hope and I really want to go with you. But if they don't get this vaccine thing worked out properly, this might be a little bit longer than we think. And I know this is more into your bailiwick. I haven't even touched on the mutation and oh, the yeah. South African mutation and whether or not this is effective on that mutation. That's a whole nother problem to deal with. But before we get there, 
It is this vaccine management thing that they have got to get their arms around and try and figure out. And you're getting mixed messages from the administration. Oh, there's it's a it's a a disaster. But wait, one million people a day are getting vaccine. Get everybody vaccined as quickly as possible. Hold on a minute. We need enough for the second doses or it doesn't work right. And we might not have enough for the second doses. So who knows what's going on with this stuff right now? So what I'm hearing basically is when you think about uh, this lockdown period or this uh, COVID-19 period as a tunnel, you know, the tunnel could be longer than we think for two reasons in particular. One, the administration of the vaccines. Two, because uh, there's some sort of mutations. And I think that the question that comes from that, just from uh, a, uh, economic and trading perspective, is what does that mean in terms of what we're seeing now, both in the economy and in terms of markets? Can the present market dynamic continue uh, as it is now? That's question number one. And then also question number two, what happens to the economy if we start getting a sense that actually the tunnel is lengthening and it'll take longer than we first anticipated? Well, to your first question, <clears throat> no, the, 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 the economy cannot persist as it is right now. Initial claims are over 900,000 for two weeks in a row. If you look at the, <clears throat> excuse me, if you look at the alternative data of mobility and real-time credit cards uh, and the like, that has turned sharply lower. We've already had a negative payroll report for December. There's still the possibility we could see another one or something very close to it for January uh, as well, too. So the economy right now is not in a good place at all. But everybody's looking past it because they're looking towards, yeah, we know it's bad now, but everybody's going to get a jab in the arm and then it's going to be okay. And I look at the, the, the future and I say that there's two issues with the future. Issue one, everything goes right. We do get all the jabs in. We do get the herd immunity. The virus starts going away. We return to normal. What is normal? What is normal going to be? Is that going to be five days a week back in the office, in a big office tower in, in a major metropolitan city? Is it going to be two days a week in an office? And what does that mean for the future of, of, say, commercial real estate? What does that mean as far as using Zoom or the way that we've been communicating? Like we're talking here with us, you know, both of us at home doing this over Skype. Does this end when, when, when uh, everybody gets jabbed? Do you then start going back to the Real Vision offices every single interview? Or do you just continue to do something like that? Do I go to a professional studio for an interview? Or do I continue to do it like this? We don't know how that's going to play out. So we don't know what the normal is going to be. We're going to go back to some pre-pandemic thing, but probably not all the way. And then you're right. Then there's the other issue. What if the tunnel gets lengthened? What if the, the vaccine administration slows down and bogs down? What if the, uh, the mutation comes and slows it down and bogs it down? Right now, the markets are priced for perfection. They're priced for everything to go well. And once it's all gone well, they're priced to, as I like to use my analogy, they're priced for a full house at Wrigley Field by the 4th of July is basically where they're going. Now, if we can't get there, that we can so open up the economy that we could stuff 40,000 people into a 40,000-seat uh, stadium, uh, then I think we're going to wind up having some kind of disappointments as we move forward. 
So, you know, I think that uh, the biggest question is, is about risk assets in, in that uh, in that paradigm, because, the you know, this this conversation was nominally billed as a conversation where we're talking about inflation versus reflation. You know, why risk assets hinge on the difference between the two uh, in the economy that you're talking about. It doesn't sound like there's a whole lot of inflation, but there still could be reflation. Talk to me about the difference between those two concepts, inflation and reflation. Yeah, I think that this concept, I know we're getting to it in the back end and we build it at the front end, but I do think that this concept can be the, the big you know, banana peel that the market steps on and could cause problems. So let me explain. Reflation is real growth. And that's uh, what we've seen. Inflation, we all know what inflation is. That's rising prices or reduction of purchasing power. Let me take it from an interest rate standpoint. What determines whether an interest rate should be 10% or negative or five and whether they should be going up or down? What fundamental factor is the dominant factor in that? And the answer is the expectation, expectation, of nominal growth. Nominal growth is real growth or reflation plus inflation. Now, for the last 25 years, whenever we've seen interest rates go up, it's been because nominal growth has expanded, and that's all come from reflation. Real economy is expanding and interest rates go up. And when interest rates have plunged, it's come from the real economy de- you know, uh, contracting or, or slowing down its growth rate, the inflation component has stayed constant for the last couple of decades, or roughly constant for the last couple of decades. So <clears throat> there's a school of thought that people that are bullish on the economy are cheering for higher interest rates. Some of those people are the Federal Reserve, because they think that the expansion of nominal growth will all come from the real reinflation side of the economy. To date, that has been, as I said, now in the last 20 years has been the case. It's largely been the case since the reopening of the economy last spring, is that most of that has come from reflation. But I've argued that moving forward from here, the inflation aspect of that might now take center stage. Uh, And if it does, it's very important to note that difference. Rising interest rates are neither bullish nor bearish for risk markets like the stock market or the economy. It depends on why they're rising. If they're rising because real growth is expanding, no problem. They can keep going up, and and the Fed could even step in with QE and suppress interest rates a little bit. Real growth is moving along. If they're rising because inflation is returning, and I want to emphasize, we haven't seen that for a generation. So this is new if it is. Then if you get a situation where interest rates are going up because inflation is going up and the Federal Reserve is going to step in and suppress interest rates and force you to take a negative real yield, a yield below the inflation rate, which continues to rise, I think that will be met very poorly by financial markets. I'm of the opinion that as we move forward from here, inflation is going to become more and more the story. Now, first in the spring, there's going to be what's known as the base effects, that as you get past the March low, the year-over-year change of inflation is going to jump up quite a bit because of the way that the uh, the economy has been reopening. 
but then after that, I think it's going to stay high and keep going high. Let me, before I tell you why, let me also. Right. Give, yeah, that's my big question. Yeah, let me give you one parameter and then I'm going to tell you why I think inflation is going to go up. Core PCE, personal consumption expenditure, that is the Fed, one of the Fed's favorite uh, metrics. If it hits 2.6%, 2.6, that's a 28 year high. So when I talk about, I think inflation is going to come back, I know if there's people that are old enough to go, okay, 10%. Or maybe there's some people that think Zimbabwe a million percent. No, 2.6. Let's start with a 28-year high in core inflation at 2.6. So I'm not talking about a lot of inflation. I'm talking about that. Now, why is it coming back? I think what we've done with all this stimulation is we've really stimulated by plowing money into people. The CARES Act, the $900 billion that we've already passed, and the $600 checks and the extra 300 bucks a week for the unemployed that have come out the $1.9 trillion that we're being talked about, the $1,400 checks and the unemployment assistance that will continue the $300 through September and everything else that's come with that. People say to me, well, you can't have inflation without wage inflation. Well, write that bigger to personal income. Personal income has been booming because more than for the first time ever in 2020, Personal income is your, your, your total income and for the whole country. 20% of that has come from the government mailing it to you. It's never been that high before. And now we just passed 900 billion at the end of the month or the end of December. We're talking about another 1.9 trillion that's coming. That's gonna be a huge stimulation initially for stock prices, which is why I think we've seen them going crazy. But eventually people are gonna wanna use that money to improve their life buy a new car, remodel their kitchen, or go on a vacation, or something like that. And that will lead, I think, to higher inflation as well, too. And throw out um, an idea here of, of UBI, universal basic income, and modern monetary theory in this respect. If we wind up having, you know, because people say to me, okay, you're right, but all we're doing is we're filling a hole. And we're filling a hole by giving people money, and that's why we're not going to have inflation. Okay. You're assuming we're done filling the hole. If we keep doing trillions of dollars in the CARES, 900 billion is already out the door. 1.9, or call it 1.1 trillion more, comes after that. And the only consequence of that is the, the poor, they get some money. Maybe it's not efficient by our standards, but they get some money. The unemployed, they get a couple of extra dollars in extra unemployment benefits. And the rich, and let's define the rich as stockholders, they see new highs in indices because all that money is getting plowed into the market because nobody's ready to spend it. Everybody wins. There's no loser. So what's the answer to that? Do it again. Write well, another check. Write and, another. and then you're in the UBI and you're in the MMT. The only thing that stops that is you go too far and you have inflation. My pushback on that is that government uh, deal, dealing with a pandemic uh, is very bad at being able to allocate resources. We, we were already talking about the vaccine and difficulties that you have there. Those are very challenging things to do, you know, with a, a large centralized uh, uh, economy uh, yeah. or a large centralized uh, 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 entity. The problem is that we have an output gap now uh, because of this pandemic. And if you have government allocating resources here or there, it's very difficult to close that output gap in a way that is going to give you measurable levels of 
consumer spending. So my question to you, my pushback is that you know the the people who are doing who have the the highest marginal propensity to spend are the ones who are on the verge of being evicted. They're not the ones who are getting the money. Uh, they're actually hurting, and as a result, it's going to be difficult for them to be able to spend. Yes. So a couple of things. Um, there is an eviction moratorium in the $1.9 trillion bill that should uh, keep them going for several more months without paying their uh, their their mortgages uh, or their rent uh, as well, too. But to your point about the output gap, <clears throat> two things. One, the relationship of the output gap to inflation is sufficiently loose enough, and it has been for many years, that when I said 2.6% or 2.7 or 26 to 3% core inflation, you could get that without violating the precepts of the output gap. If you want to start talking about 4 or 5% inflation, then the output gap kicks in. Why is 2.6 to 3 important? The bond market is so heavily levered right now because of the way that the Federal Reserve has stepped in with its quantitative easing purchases. 30% of all Treasury securities are owned by the Federal Reserve. 20% of all TIP securities are owned by the Federal Reserve. And that has given a lot of confidence to a lot of people that they're, you know, to use a, a line that JP Morgan has been using, co-invest with the Federal Reserve when it comes to fixed income securities. And that's why everybody's been jumping in because they're co-investing with the Fed. You get inflation going up and you push negative real yields down their throat. And I'm talking about actual negative real yields as opposed right. to tip securities. You'll get a pushback and you could get really chaotic fixed income markets. And that could reverberate through everything else. So I agree with you as far as the output gap goes. That's why I made that distinction, not saying we're going to go to 4% inflation or 5 yet. But if you give me 2.6 or 2.7, I'd say that's a 28-year high. And if you're at 2.7% on core and you're looking at a one point, let's say it's a 1.2 or 1.1 10-year note, and inflation is, is high and not coming back down, then you wind up saying, fixed income investors say, I know I'm co-investing with the Fed, but boy, this is such a bad deal. I'm going to just exit this market. And then you just... It winds up becoming, I think, a lot more problematic. The bond market does, and then that bothers everybody else. Yeah, you know, uh, I think uh, there are a number of questions on that. Uh, one is um, obviously gold and silver, uh, Bitcoin as alternatives. Uh, the the second question is is what what other uh, impacts does it have? I mean, there, there's a line that I've been taking now. It's the DCF stupid. Because obviously, that sounds like a recipe for interest rates going up. And then, of course, the discounted cash flow model kicks in in a very negative way, especially with a, a lengthening tunnel uh, during this COVID crisis. Um, what, um, where, where do you see uh, problems beyond the fixed income market? And where do you see opportunities? You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Well, <clears throat> you know, problems beyond the fixed income market, I, I'd have to 
you know, what's left? There's there's the equity market, and then there's there's some of the commodity markets, which would include gold and silver and the crypto markets. But let me let me let me answer the question this way. You talked about the tunnel, and we've focused on the size of the tunnel in the United States. The tunnel in Europe is much longer right now. Mm. They have got they've got the variant. They are much slower. They've got the variant much more taken hold there. They've got they're much slower on the vaccine rollouts in Europe uh, as well. To Germany has only vaccinated two percent of its population, or two percent of this population has got at least one jab. It's almost seven in the United States, and it's forty in Israel. Israel leads the leads the world right now, so they're way behind everybody else. So, and if you look at the alternative data that's coming out of Europe, it's not looking good at all. So. Europe has got a real problem on their hands. Um, I hate to say it, but I'll say it this way. They wish they were as organized as the U.S. government, because they're not. They're much further behind than we are with with everything else. And they're going to continue to struggle as we as we move forward from here. Commodities, commodities, you know, to maybe answer the question that way, um, I've been focusing on the CRB raw industrial spot index for one simple reason. It is more economically sensitive because it's industrial commodities, but it's also these industrial commodities like tallow and scrap steel and brownie points, if you know what tallow is and stuff. And uh, it, these things don't trade futures contracts, or some of them don't trade futures contracts. The problem always been with commodities is they've been considered an asset class so money flows into them. Uh, you know, investors say we got to allocate money towards commodities, and they're not very big markets. And then they go up because money's being thrown at them, or we got to get our money out and they go down. So if you look at the ones that don't have futures contracts, like the raw industrial spot, it's booming. Copper prices are booming. Rolled steel prices, eleven-year high. So this stuff is really going as well. Now, was that mean? It's hard to disintegrate. It's hard to separate. Does that mean reflation is coming or inflation is coming? It kind of means both at the same mm -hmm. time. We'll have to see how that one plays itself out as we move forward from here. But I see commodity prices as definitely going. And if we if we morph the reflation to inflation story, they're not going to stop uh, as well too. I'll stop there. And if there's any other questions, you want me to follow up on anything else? Yeah, actually, uh, there are a host of questions from the audience here. I think now's a good time to uh, to ask them. Let's see which ones we have uh, that have not been asked. Let me start with this. Um, uh, since you were talking about inflation and uh, reflation, uh, CB asks, uh, since we already know that the Fed responds to the deflationary threat with policy that is good for risk assets, isn't the only tail we need to see, uh, we need to hedge a surprise inflationary outcome. I think that is the only tail that you'll need to hedge, especially with the way that the Federal Reserve has been playing this out. They're outwardly touting for more inflation. Um, you know, that they, Charlie Evans, the Chicago Fed president, said he could see the inflation rate going to the core inflation rate going to two and a half, my two, six, 28 year high. And then he had a curious line. This was earlier in January. He said, the Fed is in it to win it when it comes to creating inflation uh, as well. And my response to him 
would be, Charlie, it's not your call. You guys at the Fed can sit around and invent whatever number you want. Oh, we'll tolerate 3% inflation or 2.8 or 2.6 or 157. Take, take your pick, whatever number. What will the market tolerate? Remember the fourth quarter of 2018. The Fed said, look, we're going to taper the balance sheet. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then finally, December 19th, 2018, Powell comes out and says, we're going to taper the balance sheet $600 billion a month. It's going to be on automatic pilot. That was the word he used. And it'll be about as interesting as watching paint dry. The stock market fell 3% during his press conference explaining it and just kept getting hammered for the next week. Then he went to the Turks and Caicos on vacation, Paul did. Then he comes back 10 days later, and he's speaking January 2019 at the American Economics Association conference in Atlanta. He says, okay, well, now we're going to be patient and flexible. 10 days <laughs> of bad markets and that carefully crafted policy out the window. And now we're patient and flexible. So the Fed could say, we'll tolerate whatever inflation rate they think they're going to tolerate. When the market has decided it can't tolerate it, we're within 10 days of the Fed changing its policy at that point. Now, maybe the market will tolerate 2.6 or 2.7 or 2.8. We'll find out when and if we get there with the inflation rate uh, as well. So I think, yes, you need to absolutely hedge yourself against more inflation because it isn't about what the Fed tells you. It's about what the market has decided what the limit is. Last off for you, I've used this metaphor that the Fed is a post in the ground. And the market is a horse tethered to the post. And the horse just stands there and doesn't do anything exactly like the Fed wants. We've, we've tethered the market and we don't want it to go anywhere. But if that horse ever gets spooked and inflation could spook it, it'll rip that post right out of the ground and it'll go wherever it wants. We've seen that in, with the Bank of Japan. We've seen that with the ECB that they put together. And we saw that with the Fed in 2018 when they put together these carefully crafted communication speeches and forward guidance, and they lay out how they're going to do things. And then the market wakes up one day and says, no, nah, we don't like it. We're going to go in a different direction. They'll just run them right over until they're forced to change. We haven't done that yet. But if the Fed is in it to win it for more inflation, uh, and uh, they keep making up numbers, oh, we, the Fed, will tolerate 2.5 or inflation. It's not up to you, the Fed. It's up to the market to decide how much inflation it will tolerate, how much negative real yields it will stomach before it rejects it. And that's where I think the mistake will come in. And that's why, yes, you need to hedge yourself against inflation. Yeah, very interesting. I like the uh, the analogy with the post. Uh, it's been, I'll have to reuse that one. Uh, you know, uh, we have an, uh, since we're talking about inflation, uh, let, let's get this question here from Shreni, who asks, can we get a clear distinction of inflation and deflation and what happens during each? What assets go up or down in each scenario? Yeah, and he says, or she says, thanks. Yeah. So in an, let me answer the question this way. Um, in an inflationary in scenario, what typically happens is stock prices and bond prices move up and down together. Or to say exactly the same thing, as interest rates go up, stock prices go down. As interest rates go down, stock prices go up. That's when you have inflation. You go back and you look at the 60s to the 90s. That was the relationship between stocks and bonds. So when you have inflation, both stock prices and bond prices go down together. 
And I've you know pointed out in some of our writings and, and stuff that the inflation-adjusted S&P 500 peaked in 1966, right when the inflation started to take off. It bottomed in 1982, losing 65% of its value, uh, real value, real after-inflation value by 66 to 82. And it wasn't until 1993 that eventually got back and took out its 1966 high. So almost 30 years of not making any money because of inflation. So in an inflationary period, all financial assets hurt. I know there's an argument that has been made that stocks do well in an inflationary period. They made that argument in the early 70s, too, that stocks are the ultimate hedge against inflation. They're really not, because companies can raise their prices, but not as fast as their raw material prices, and it tends to squeeze their margins. Deflation, falling inflation to negative inflation. In that environment, you get the opposite. You get stock and bond prices moving in opposite directions or say exactly the same thing, yields and stock prices go up and down together. That's been the case for the last 20 years. So much so that we now think that's permanent. So we've invented risk parity, the 60-40 portfolio, um, and, and the like, risk on, risk off as a term, because now we believe that every time stock prices go down, bond prices are supposed to rally. That's a deflationary or a severe disinflationary mindset. If we were to morph into an inflationary mindset, the 60-40 portfolio doesn't work anymore. It becomes a 100-0 portfolio. Either both are going up together or both are going down together. The risk parities trades don't work anymore. There's some evidence that that's exactly what's been happening to the AQRs and the Bridgewaters of the world that traffic in that stuff. They've been really struggling with their risk risk parity portfolios. Risk on, risk off is no longer a thing because the, you know, the risk off rally is supposed to be bond prices rally. Well, if you get some kind of inflation, both are going down at the same time. So I think that's the way we need to understand it. Now, it's not clear, and I want to emphasize this, we're not in an inflationary period now. I think it's coming. I think it's it's the next thing that by the end of the year, we're going to be a lot more understanding that we are in an inflationary period. So that trade, that, that 60-40 portfolio trade is still sort of working. The risk parity trade is struggling. But I think as we move forward and we get more and more types of um, signs that inflation might be returning, again, only 2.6 on a core is all I'm looking for, I think you're going to find a lot of those relationships, whether it's 60-40, risk parity, risk on, risk off, they're going to stop working as we go forward from here. Those are not permanent relationships. They've been around for the last 20 years, so we assume they're permanent, but they weren't the way things traded from the 60s to the 90s when we were worried about inflation. Interesting. Good Good stuff. Um, so uh, let's, talk, let's talk about the dollar, because we haven't talked about it for a while, with two questions. I'm going to combine the two. The first is from Lynn. Uh, she asks, uh, how about the relationship between crude oil and the dollar value? And then, the, and Bill also asked, "What's the dollar direction in the next six to twelve months?" <clears throat> I think the dollar. I think the biggest thing that's driving the dollar right now, um, and right now meaning say the last year or so, is it's been viewed as somewhat of a risk-off asset. When we were going into the spring, 
we saw a gigantic dollar rally. And when we, why? Because when everything was hitting the fan and we didn't know what to do, everybody ran to the safest instrument that you could find. And if you were a currency-based investor, that was put yourself in dollars. So you saw a big dollar rally. We've seen the dollar reverse and now sell off more and more. I know it's stabilized a little bit um, right now. <clears throat> and that, I think, has been part and parcel of the risk on rally. Well, I don't want to be stuck in a stodgy old safe investment like the dollar. I'll go into something riskier. If you look at the Morgan Stanley Developed Currency Index, mm -hmm. the dollar is weakened a lot more against that index than, say, the Dixie, the, uh, the, the straight dollar index, which is all the developed currencies. Because if we're in a risk on environment and it's, and it's you know, about making money, not about preserving money, then everybody run to all the risky stuff. And that's what we've seen doing. So in this environment, I think what we've seen with the dollar is it's been more of like a risk on, risk off type of instrument, trades a little bit, trades more like treasuries mm -hmm. than I think it, it's ever had. To your specific question about the dollar in crude oil, I'm going to push back on that. And I'm going to say crude oil has got a lot of issues that are you know that are bigger than the dollar. We saw that in the spring when the price went negative, and that was largely driven by the ETFs and all of the derivative trading that was going on in in the in in crude oil, and that it forced the April contract at that point to go to negative thirty eight dollars uh, for one day. We've seen it being heavily manipulated by OPEC and what OPEC is wanting to do or not wanting to do. We've seen it heavily you know, um, uh, moving with uh, whatever the administration is going to do with the Keystone Pipeline and with ANWR and with the like as well, too. So crude oil, if it was in a more stable environment, oh, and let me not forget, that crude oil is also somewhat of a world demand indicator. If the, if the world economy is coming back, it should do better. If the world economy is stumbling, it should do a little bit worse because that will drive the marginal demand for energy like crude oil as well, too. So given all of that, the dollar's impact on crude oil, I put down as like the fourth or fifth most important thing, not one or two. Once you get past that and you get into a more pre-pandemic kind of normal world, if we ever get back there again, the dollar then becomes number one or two. Right now, I don't think it's a big impact on the price of crude oil. So uh, there's another question Bill was asking about EM, the dollar, and, and commodity narratives over the next three to six to 12 months. And I think that, uh, you know, uh, <clears throat> and he also asked about the DXY being 30% euro trade weighted. Uh, maybe you can take those two in conjunction. The, the first question I think goes back to this risk on uh, question that you were talking about, or the uh, you were saying that uh, you know it looks like the dollar is trading in a way that uh, is related to risk on risk off emerging market uh, currencies doing well in a risk on environment. So what do you see in emerging markets, the dollar and commodities over the next three to six to twelve months? Well, over the next three to six months, the EMs will definitely continue to. Um, enjoy the reflation trade. They're the commodity producers, largely, China being somewhat of an, uh, of an exception. 
And that if you get an inflation play and you get higher copper prices and you get higher industrial prices uh, as well, too, you will continue to see them doing better. China's always been a special circumstance uh, as well, too. That, I think, <clears throat> when you get away from the manipulation that's going on there and it gets muddy with what's happening in Hong Kong and everything else, that's just a play on the global recovery. Uh, we have, if we're going to have a global recovery, China will do better. Uh, and it has recently. If the global recovery stalls because of a mutation or slowness of the vaccine, and I'm talking about the vaccine globally now, not just in the developed worlds like the United States and Europe, but when are we going to get the vaccine to Africa? When are we going to get the vaccine to Asia uh, as well, too, or the Middle East, and try and get it through those populations as well? If we have problems there, then I think China starts to struggle because they are, like I said, they're the proxy for for world growth. So EM um, leaving China as an ex as as a bit of an exception, I think they're going to do well with the reflation slash coming inflation trade. At least initially, Brazilian copper mines will continue to be winners in that type of environment uh, as well, too. Whichever way we go. Yeah, we, you know, I, I, we still have like uh, five, six questions left. And, I, I, you know, I, I have you on like uh, 68 minutes here at this point. So I'm going to have to, uh, I'm going to give you maybe one. Let me combine questions uh, for you so we I'm can end it all good, now. But go ahead, shoot them up. Um, I, I always want to talk about cryptocurrencies because, you know, here at uh, Real Vision, we've been talking about crypto a decent amount. So, let me uh, let me ask you these two questions. Uh, one is from Alvaro, and the other is from uh, Philip Plant. Uh, um, Alvaro says, "Any perspective on Bitcoin?" And then Philip Plant says, "Will the issuance of 100-year bonds change your narrative?" And I don't know what he's talking about in terms of uh, change which narrative, but I'm thinking almost immediately of the 100-year bonds in uh, in Peru. Uh, that were issued recently. Let me take that second one first. <clears throat> if I was king of the world for five seconds, you're all in trouble. But uh, beyond that, I would say that the new yield curve in the United States is the 30-year bond, the 50-year bond, the 100-year bond, and a perpetual bond. And that I would just keep issuing them every day until everybody was begging for mercy to please stop. I think that we should be lengthening the maturities of our securities at these historically low interest rates and getting rid of the reinvestment risk that we face right now uh, by issuing a 10-year bond and wondering where interest rates are going to be in 10 years when we have to refinance it. Issue a 50- or 100-year bond now and be done with it for all of our lifetimes uh, as well. The, the, the politics, real quick on that, is the Republicans are against it because anything that comforts or makes it easier to run a deficit, they're against because they want to get rid of deficits, not make it easier to finance them. So the Freedom Caucus is against it. Wall Street hates it because it's a new market for them. They have to make markets in and they don't want to. It's messy. They lose money initially. And that's why the Treasury Borrowing Auction Committee, the TBAC, constantly pushes back when Mnuchin last year was talking about a 50-year bond, they wrote papers saying it's a bad idea, it's a terrible idea, and the safe face, he issued a new 20-year bond. And now Yellen is talking about issuing century bonds again as well, too. I think they should do it. I just don't know if they're going to get enough of a, of a, a groundswell of, of support 
um, to do it as well, too. And, and by the way, what about the pension companies and the insurance companies? Don't they want that? Yes, they do want that. They absolutely do want that. There's one misconception about long-term bonds. I think that people fall into a trap on. I want to try to dissuade people. 100-year bond, well, how do I know what the credit of Peru is going to be in 100 years? Why in God's name would anybody buy a 100-year bond? The reality of the situation is no one knows the credit standing of anything beyond about 10 years. I don't know what Apple's credit rating is going to be in 10 or 15 years. I don't know what the United States' credit rating is going to be in 10 or 15 years. So what makes a 100-year bond very popular and very useful? It helps with its convexity and its duration, these bond terms. They makes them very good instruments for pensions and other long-duration asset firms to match their liabilities and their assets. They love those instruments. Not enough. The problem is those firms are not heavy traders with Wall Street. Wall Street, yes, yeah, says, yeah, the pensions will buy it, but it goes in once and then we never see them again. And I'm stuck making a market on this thing every single minute of every day. And that's why I'm Wall Street dealer is against it, even though the pension plans are for it. So all I'm trying to say is <laughs> this is not about the why would anybody buy a hundred year Argentine bond? Um, when they're going to default or something like that. And what were you thinking? Well, I don't know what their credit rating is going to be in five years, let alone what it's going to be in 100 years. Anybody buys anything greater than a five-year is taking the same credit risk. It's those convexity and duration pro properties is what makes those bonds attractive to long-duration firms like pension plans and endowments that plan on being around for decades and like those kind of instruments. So I'm all in favor of pushing out the century bonds. I think that we should be, if I was the Treasury Secretary, I would tell Wall Street that either you're going to make a market in century bonds, 100-year bonds, or I'm going to call up TradeWeb or Market Access, the, the, uh, the, the platforms that trade bonds, and I'm going to give it to them and push mm. you guys out of the business of being right. real. You know, in time, it's time to join the 21st century here uh, as far. But we'll see whether or not Yellen does. Mnuchin tried to do it last year. And he saved face by issuing a 20-year. We'll see whether or not we can. She's made noises again about issuing a 50-year and maybe more. And we'll see where that goes. What was the first question? Oh, cryptocurrency. Yes. So let me make a quick comment this way. I always like to start my comments about cryptocurrencies this way. <clears throat> there, is a comp there is a competitor to a crypto, and that is a CBDC, a central bank digital currency. That would be, for lack of a better term, Fed dollar. The Fed issues a digital dollar. That, I've argued, is a complete non-starter and will never happen. Now, why is it a non-starter? The Fed could create a digital currency very short order, if, they, if not immediately. But how do I use a digital currency? How do I get this digital dollar? I need a, I need a, a conduit to get to it. That conduit would be I, me, you, everybody, we have accounts directly with the Federal Reserve. And that digital, digital currencies go in and out of our accounts directly with the Federal Reserve. Well, man, if you can give me an account with the Federal Reserve, I'm closing my Citibank and Bank of America account in three seconds. What purpose does the banking system have if, if I can hold my money with the central bank directly 
And that's why they're that's why they struggle with the digital currency. They could create it, but they put the banking system in a severe in a bad place. Oh, but we could create the digital currency and you have to go to Citibank or Bank of America in order to open an account to use it. It serves no purpose. You have not accomplished anything by doing that. Um, it's for me, the end user, nothing has changed. So it doesn't serve any purpose to do that. So I don't think a digital currency from a central bank is ever going to take hold because it wrecks their it wrecks their domestic banking system because they take away the deposit taking function of all of their banks. A cryptocurrency. <clears throat> My comment about cryptos is the the I I don't know how they're going to take hold, but I know the absolute last place that they will take hold. And that is going to be the United States. They will come to the U.S. last. Why will they come to the U.S. last? We are the reserve currency. Everybody uses the dollar. We have the competitive advantage of the status quo. We don't need to change that. Where do I think they're going to go first? You look throughout all of the third world, and there's two things that we need to know about the third world in this respect that's different from the United States. The third world never really had landline penetration like the US. Prior to the invention of the mobile phone 20 years ago, the popularity of the mobile phone taking off 20 years ago, 100% of the US had a landline. Every building in the United States, you could get a phone into it through a landline. That was never close to the case in the third world. Then mobile phones came and the third world took off with mobile phones. Mobile phone adoption in a lot of third world countries is as high as it is in the United States. Kenya is an example. It's almost the same mobile phone adoption there, the number of mobile phones in Kenya as there is in the United States. In the, year, in the third world, because of shaky banking systems as well too, uh, electronic payment systems are very popular. So M-Pesa, go back to Kenya, is a way that you could take with your phone in Kenya and I could text you money to your phone in Kenya through this system called M-Pesa uh, as well. And as I like to say, whatever happened to your old iPhone 5 or 6 that you traded in a year and a half ago for a 10 or 11 or a 12, it's probably in Kenya, and they're probably transferring money back and forth to each other. Their adoption rates of digital payments is much higher than it is in the United States. We still stick our stupid chip cards in at the Starbucks and wait 15 seconds for it to approve it and stand in line and do that stuff. We're only slowly getting towards these um, mobile payments. So when you come to a third world country, shaky banking system, shaky government, and you propose to them a crypt, a global cryptocurrency, maybe not Bitcoin because that's more of a store of value as opposed to a payment system. Maybe if it forks and itself, it can become a payment system, but Ethereum or some kind of stable coin becomes a payment system, they will adopt it immediately and they will start sending it back and forth to each other. And it will spread out throughout the third world. And then, it's, you know, I know it doesn't technically exist throughout the second world, and it'll come to us last. I've used the analogy that it'll be like Uber in big cities. Initially, when Uber was starting up, the big cities, they all looked at each other and go, we got the mayor in our pocket. We've got the city council in our pocket. We got all these regulations. They'll never be, a, they'll never take over our competitive advantage. That's the US with the reserve currency status. But the masses in the city so demanded it that it overwhelmed them. If everybody else is using digital currencies and we are not and say, no, we want to continue to use the dollar, 
It's going to be forced down our throat on everybody else. So that's why I think it comes to us last as opposed to coming to us first. So yeah, I'm a believer in digital currencies. I think that I'm a believer in, in cryptocurrencies as some kind of a global-ish type of currency or some kind of regional types of currencies will come into being existing at some point. And that I am a believer that that will eventually replace the dollar as the next reserve currency. The dollar won't be, reserve, be replaced by another fiat. It won't be replaced by the euro or the yen or the yuan. It'll be replaced by some crypto. Maybe that crypto doesn't exist right now. Maybe it's still 15 years away. Maybe it's three years away and it does exist. And it's called Ethereum or something like that. I don't know. But I do think that that is the road that we're on and we will continue to be on that road. As I talked about at the beginning about, you know, I'm not a big fan of the bank stocks and I think the bank stocks have trouble. This is one more reason <laughs> that the bank stocks have trouble. This is, this is a competition for banks that they are never going to be able to overcome, that if you get a global or some versions of global cryptocurrencies and online accounts to transfer that money back and forth, and you take away the deposit-taking function of banks, you've taken away the fundamental reason that we have a bank in the first place. Maybe that's why the bank stocks are at the same level they were 25 years ago in the United States, 30 years ago in Europe. They're at the same, you know, Deutsche Bank, Stock price today, as I like to quip, as I like to humorously say, is at the same price it was in 1983 when 99 Left Balloons was the number one song in the world. <laughs> Deutsche Bank has made no progress whatsoever since that song was number one. There's a reason, and it isn't just the latest management is having problems. It's the basic structure of where, what does it mean to be a bank and what purpose do they serve in a coming digital crypto world that we're going to have to think about. Yeah. So I, I remember know that song? Some 1990s Luftballons back in the day. Yes. So, I, I, Jim, I know that you have to get on your bike and ride. Uh, you know, you're, you're, you got to beat the storm. I really appreciate you taking the time. This has been an epic uh, Real Vision Live. Thank you and uh, hope to have you back again soon. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.